I remember in transition year we did a quiz online about what job or career you should go into and my friends got really cool ones like um, nurse, social worker, lawyer, all of these different jobs and I got baggage handler at the airport. From so like to say guy. I was lost, yeah. How and did that come about? How I did it no come idea. about? I'd love to know, yeah. I'll never forget it. You know, not like, that there's anything wrong with being a baggage. Not at all, but I didn't say I lived near the airport. Hello again. In this episode of Insights, Holly Kearns, leader of the Social Democrats, talks about the challenges of her new position, about growing up on a small dairy farm in West Cork. And if the Social Democrats become part of government after the next election, the position, positions even, she'd love to hold. Holly Cairns, leader of the Social Democrats, thank you so much indeed for joining us on the Insights with Sean O'Rourke podcast. Um, You're still in the early days as leader of the Social Democrats. How is it going for you? How is it working out? So far, so good. Um... I'm taking it one day at a time and obviously there's lots of new challenges and uh, pressures and different things like that. But um, the response has been really positive and for the most part, I just feel really excited about the future of the party and the kind of potential for us to grow in the current political climate because I feel like it's really a time of change. I think we can all kind of feel the tide turning. And so it's a great time to be in a kind of new progressive party in Irish politics. Is there a big difference between being a backbencher, albeit as a frontbench spokesperson, insofar as you can have a front and a backbench uh, in a party of six uh, TDs, but the step up to the, le- to the leadership, uh, has that been tough? In some ways it has, yeah. Um, it's made a lot easier by having the support of all of the parliamentary party. Um, and you know the way sometimes when you see transitions of leaders that there's kind of like, it's quite fraught and there's like metaphorical knives and backs. There's absolutely none of that. And I think for me, I'm really glad and I don't know if I would or could have done it without the support of all of the parliamentary party. And that makes it um, an awful lot easier. And yeah, I mean, I guess the biggest challenge that I'm finding now in a way is, um, and it's probably like more of a personality trait that like for so long, say with the with the way I've approached politics, starting out going for the council elections or maybe even before that for a repeal and and then for uh, the Dáil elections and being a TD is like saying yes to as much as I possibly can and giving it my absolute all. And I think you have to do that in politics. There's no point in doing it half-heartedly. You might as well go hard or go home. But now it's a situation where I simply can't say yes to everything because there's so many things. And then kind of transitioning to saying, you know, really having to be like good at prioritising and saying no to things and making sure that you're prioritising the right things. Um, that's kind of difficult to to juggle. And I think I'm still finding my feet and my way with that. Um, and what about something like leaders' questions? A lot of attention on, on a party leader at that stage. That's yeah. new to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember the first time doing it there. The I became leader at... Um, midday and leaders' questions is at half past. And I remember, yeah, just feeling so nervous. Um, Because, you know, it's a really important role. And um, I mean, I remember people saying to me like, oh, after time, you'll get less nervous. Even when I was, you know, um, as a TD, I get nervous going on the radio, going on the TV, going into the doll. And uh, that hasn't changed. (laughs) And like that, if anything, it's it's amped up with the the new position. But um, people also often say, if you're not nervous, that's not ideal. 
Um, but yeah. And what about the general reaction to your um, accession to the leadership, to your election? Have, have Has there been a surge of interest in the party? I mean, your early opinion polls have been quite favourable. I think you're still the most popular of the party leaders. Um, there's been a, an, an uptick in support for the Social Democrats. Are people... Are people wanting to join since you became leader? 100%, yeah. We did have a bit of a, you know, kind of a, like you said, there was a, a bit of an increase in the polls, but like a bounce insinuates an up and then down. So we wouldn't be getting ahead of ourselves, you know. We we know we have to earn people's trust and people's votes, um, but it is really nice to have that kind of lift and surge in membership and support um, since the transition. And I think, look, it's been so positive, like the amount of people getting in touch, just saying, you know, that they finally feel like politics become more accessible. Like I'm from a generation like I finished school in 2008 when the crash was going on. All of my friends were moving abroad. That was kind of the only option. And the kind of feeling that we had around politics was that it was like just you couldn't trust any of them. That It was a dreadful scene. And the word political party almost felt like a dirty word. And there was just kind of a, an avoidance, like it was very negative. None of us wanted to know about it. And like the reason that I felt like I'm going to go for it when the leadership kind of contest came up, because like I made a list of pros and cons and it wasn't like the pros were outweighing it in terms of loads of different things. But I felt like in order for a new party like us to, to make some ground in this time of change, like we need to reach people who like me four years ago are just maybe listening to the radio or the, the TV or hearing about leaders' questions being like, what? How, this doesn't represent me. This kind of, we need to reach those people because a lot of people who are just completely disillusioned and disengaged. And I feel like as somebody who was that person four years ago, I hope I'll be well placed to reach them. And that's kind of the feeling that we're getting. Like even recently I did an interview and there was, the photographer came to the farm and the interviewer and the photographer said, is it okay if I stay and listen to the interview? And it was so interesting. So we went through all of the questions and then at the end, the interviewer was saying to me, do you have anything that you'd like to add? And I was like, no, I think that's 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 a wrap. And I had said just before we finished, like, we want, you know, people to join us, get involved if you want the same kind of change. Uh, and the photographer just said, sorry, can I just say before you finish, like, what do you mean get involved? Because I've been, you know, kind of watching you and your political career and going into the leadership role and I want to get involved. But what do you mean? And it's like we forget in politics that people don't necessarily know what it means to get involved in a political party, that you don't need a special invitation or qualification, that this is open to everybody. And the politics is for those people. They, you know, we're in charge of who we who runs the country by virtue of who we elect to run it. And there's this kind of it seems like a closed shop when you're not involved, that you can't get involved in that and that those people who are elected are some kind of other people that's not necessarily you. And like, that's not the case. OK, as of now, I think you have something like 21 councillors of the six TDs, which is three times more than you had prior to the last election, 35 branches. Do you have a target in mind? First, first of all, organisationally, I mean, how, how many branches would you expect or want to have uh, ahead of the next local elections in just over a year? Um, as many as possible. And like, I think, you know, we went from basically zero to 21 uh, seats in the last council election. And, you know, I've just kind of come into the role and getting to grips with like where all of the different branches are at and what's going on. And basically, I think the potential is kind of limitless. I think, you know, I'm really ambitious about the future of the party. And I think when you offer people the progressive alternative in Ireland, they tend to take it. We haven't always had that option. Um, and it's really a matter of how 
kind of we, quickly we can find the the people who want to do it or you know would be suitable for it all of those things and building the branches around them to support them um, and that will all depend on kind of the next few months and you know yourself it's not that easy necessarily to find people but I think that we're going to probably do better than people might expect But if if you've got all these people getting in touch now you haven't put any numbers on it about the number of people wanting to join the party or giving you expressions of support I mean like would it be realistic for you to have say twice as many branches before the local elections. Yeah. You can do that? Yes. And to double your number of councillors? I really hope so. And that's being realistic about it, having looked at who's getting in touch and all that? Yes. Okay, well, look, um, I suppose that's one way we'll know whether that's been uh, realistic or otherwise, but we'll have to talk about it in a year's time. But before we talk about policy and other matters, can we go right back? You you grew up, you mentioned about a farm there a while ago, a, a small farm in West Cork. Very small, yeah. It's about a 30, less than 35, about 33 acres um, farm in West Cork. So when I was growing up, it was a small dairy farm um, on the Turkhead Peninsula, beautiful part of West Cork. Where's that near, the Turkhead Peninsula? Um, it's near Lachine, which is finally on the map because of the rowers um, are from the parish. <laughs> so it's near Skibbereen then? Near Skibbereen. Um, as the crow flies, it's probably closer to Baltimore. Um, and But yeah, in between Skibbereen and Ballydehob, quite far off the main road down towards the water. And was it an idyllic childhood? It was lovely, yeah. Um, like that, beautiful place, great school, all of that stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, like that, milking cows is not an, an easy job. Um, it's quite a lot of work. And like that was back in the day when we used to bring the milk to the creamery every day in the milk tank. And um, it was uh, my mum is the farmer and she was milking between 12 and 16 dairy cows. Imagine that you could raise two children as a, a single parent on um between 12 and 16 dairy cows back then it's unheard of now Was she physically milking them or using milking machines? Oh with a milking machine Right okay <laughs> and your parents separated when you were quite young is that right? Um, when I was about four or five I think so yeah well, I always feel like it's important to make that definition She's a single mother but not a lone parent we very much uh, spent an equal amount of time with both our parents we'd spent half the week in Durris um, Dunbeacon near Durris near Bantry and the other half of the week in uh, near Lachine with our mum. Right. And your dad, I think, is a literary uh, type of man. He set up a literary festival in, in the area. That's right. He's a publisher and he set up the West Cork Literary Festival a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so both of them kind of small business owners and um, very involved in the community. My mum set up things like the farmer's market and there was dad involved in the literary festival. So, yeah. Uh, so uh, lots of experiences <laughs> for you to, to dip into, I suppose. Um, and... What was it like in school? I mean, were you a very studious type? No, nope, not particularly. Um, I struggled with a lot of subjects in school, actually. I wasn't a really academic student at all. Um, the only subject I really thrived in was English. Um, I liked business as well. Um, when I was in school, it was when religion became a leaving search subject. I remember finding that very interesting. I kept that on. Um, but I wasn't... Um, one of those really academic, high-achieving students by any stretch of the imagination. Now, after school, um, if I have the sequence right, you um, 
you went to Liverpool, you studied there briefly, and then you studied in Waterford, you taught in Dundalk, and then you worked in an orphanage in Romania, followed by four years in Malta helping people with disabilities. Now, how did all of that unfold? Um, it's a good question. How did it unfold? It was kind of like... It doesn't sound like it was all planned. I'll put no, it like that to you. definitely not. And I often think of like, you know, when I visit schools and stuff, I often talk about that, how I had no idea what I wanted to do when I was younger. And that like a lot of people don't when they're between the ages of 12 and 18 or whatever you are in secondary school. Um, and I always point out that I remember in transition year, we did uh, this like kind of uh, quiz online about what job or career you should go into. And my friends got really cool ones like, um, you know, like nurse, um, social worker, lawyer, all of these different cool jobs. And I got baggage handler at the airport. From so like career, to say I was lost, yeah. How and did that come about? How did it come about? I have no idea, I'd love to know. Yeah, I'll never forget it. So I often say that to, to schools when I visit it, you know. Not like, that there's anything wrong with being a baggage not handler. Not at all, but I didn't say I lived near the airport because I don't. It would have been a bit of a commute. Or that I liked like really physical work or that I was particularly, you know, um, it just didn't make any sense. Um, but that kind of maybe is like a, a bit of a, a snapshot in time of what it was like and I just always tried different things and I loved moving to different places. I mean, it was kind of like that a lot of us were moving abroad a lot at that time. So I lived in quite a few different countries for quite short periods of time, like uh, Greece, Spain, America. Uh, Malta was the longest stint that I did and always just trying different things and I'd found different like specific parts of things that I really liked. And in the end, it all kind of like brought me to here because like that in Malta I worked in disability support services and to see how good services can be in a country makes it even more if it's possible outrageous to come back and see the kind of provision of services here it's an absolute disgrace and then like all of those different things like coming when I moved back from Malta and to take on the family farm and business which had kind of gone out of dairy at this point, dairy farms, to see the transformation of Irish agriculture in my lifetime has been a big motivating factor for me. A farm like that is completely unviable now to, you know, a, a 30 acre farm making a living off of dairy. So that became unviable. We went into beef and that became unviable. I came back and I'd seen that transformation. And then I did my master's in organic horticulture in UCC and I did my uh, research on the importance of locally adapted seed. And I think that's the first time I did well in something academically. But um, I think it just goes to show when you're really interested in something, it's much easier to do well if you're not naturally academic, maybe like me. And, you know, all of those things brought me to politics because like that then when I went out and kind of, you know, was very kind of maybe politically engaged by the marriage equality referendum and then more so by repeal, I was out canvassing and knocking on doors and did the training with Together for Yes. With the realisation that that's how you change things. And instead of having the frustration of agriculture policy coming out from the department and seeing the kind of decimation of those small farms in Ireland and therefore rural communities, like one farm sells up, less students in the school, the post office potentially closing, like the impact of it. Um, and then the science of it of the, the impact of those policies, the soil degradation, the future of our food security, all of those things. And then the absence of good disability support services and everything. It all kind of like, you know, after repeal, I wasn't motivated to continue in politics around abortion services. That was achieved. Marriage equality, that was achieved. The motivation to continue was the other things that I'd encountered through that kind of 
trying all these different things, you know. But I'd like you to tell me a bit more uh, first about just working the farm, coming back, working with mm. your mother. I mean, like, as of now, there's a sense that like dairy farms and farmers have never been um, as viable as they are now. And um, so what was it? What changed in your own case? I mean, was it just the, the, the size of the farm was just too small? Yeah, well, I, when milk quotas were lifted, basically there was no cap on the number of cattle you could have. And then obviously with the increase in the number of cattle everybody had, that brought down the price of milk, essentially. And then if you could only produce a small amount, then it wasn't worth your while doing it anymore. So it was like the economy of scale of production just increased and therefore the smaller farms became unviable. What did you and your mum do with your own farm then to make it viable? And did you succeed to do that? Yeah. Um, so we still, like that, we went out of dairy and then we had... Um, beef and like prices for beef aren't great we hear a lot about that the kind of cartel like structure that we have in Ireland um, so we went into vegetable seed production so a lot of people might be like where like how we don't think about where do vegetable seeds come from but if you imagine like an annual crop like a tomato you cut open a tomato and you can see where the seed is so that's where we get that but then a lot of people would say and my mum says that she had two degrees in botany before she knew where the seed came from on a carrot <laughs> and that is if you came <laughs> to the farm you might say God it looks like the place has just been left to kind of go to seed or that wouldn't be the term they'd use but um, basically in the second year the carrot plant would flower and, and seeds would produce on that and so we do about 200 different varieties of vegetable, herb and grain seed for the home grower um, we don't do kind of like large scale production in terms of for acres and acres of wheat or something we do for the home grower if you want to grow a bit in your background but you know it'd be good to expand eventually as well but um, I've just and been a bit busy with all the politics for that Brown envelope seeds I mean there's certainly <laughs> political uh, echoes in that particular title for the business that you have yeah, it was lamed long before I went into politics. That's kind of unfortunate now. <laughs> now, to turn to your, your initiation into politics, your mother stood for the Greens in the local elections in 2004. The Green Party, I mean, were you involved in that campaign? And why didn't you end up joining the Greens as opposed to the, the, the Social Democrats? Um, I wasn't involved in the campaign. I think I was quite a young teenager at the time. And it was back, in, back when we had the town councils, like you say, so much smaller kind of election. And I honestly just remember being mortified, like seeing posters of my mum and just being embarrassed I didn't get involved or anything like that. And um, I can't remember when my mum left the Green Party fairly lively after they went into government. 2007, and they went in with Fianna Fáil, yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, so I mean, when I decided to go into politics um, after the repeal the 8th campaign, and I was thinking, oh, like that kind of light bulb moment for me of knocking on doors, asking for votes. That's how you change things. I did think, what party would I go in with, you know, or would I join? And I thought, look, one of my biggest bugbears in Irish politics is people inheriting their vote. We, you know, people, you hear people say, like, I'm Fianna Gael, almost like they say I'm Irish. It's like we really identify. But like almost everyone has come from either a Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael family in Ireland. That's the reality. I think my mum's side were Fianna Gael and my dad's side were Fianna Fáil and like that my mum been in the Green Party. So I thought it's really important to actually look into the different parties and see which party you align with rather than this kind of inheriting your vote because I think it's been so problematic in terms of keeping the status quo regardless of what happens. <laughs> um, and when I did that and looked into it, um, climate action being one of the most important issues for me, like I said, around agriculture policy and all of those things, um, but like, I don't think you can address 
climate change without social democracy. So it's like, it's this thing around agriculture is a really good example. But like, say, if you go to someone in a rural area and say, you can't have your car anymore because of the amount of emissions being released. And like, if somebody said that to me, I'd be like, that's like utterly unreasonable. I can't do, it's 15 minutes to the main road before you even go further on into a town. Like, what would I do? How would I get food? How would I go to work? How would, you know, if you had children, how would you get them to school? All of these, it's completely like unworkable. Are you saying that about the Greens now in government, that they're not living in the real world? They're not addressing it in the way that it needs to be addressed. So then if somebody came and said to me, look, you can't have a car anymore because of climate change and the, the, the implications of that are not even worth thinking about. So this isn't a conversation of will we, yeah, will we. Yeah, but it's not as though we they want to, to take it away from you today or tomorrow. Well, no, but I'm just saying this is as an example compared to the, the, the herd. Just, the, I'll just um, It's kind of an analogy. Um, but if somebody came and said to me, OK, if there was a an electric powered minibus that came up and down this cul-de-sac every half hour, hour, two hours, blah, blah, blah. How would that, you know, you're kind of going, OK, like, OK, I don't want to lose my car. I, I feel like I want it. And because I grew up in a society where we're kind of all entitled to have a car, I still feel attached to it. But at least it's kind of a more... <laughs> kind of it's more of a possibility at least and it's like there's never that engagement you know and like particularly we see that around farming just like the new new kind of things coming out and it's like why isn't there a proper engagement with the community why isn't there a fair transition and like that's just key in taking climate action it would be absolutely essential that it's done in a fair way and like the kind of basic principle of social democracy is that there's a floor beneath which nobody can fall below and that has to come into every policy. If you're changing around agricultural policies, you ensure people don't just fall into poverty because you've whipped out the kind of allowance for them to have a certain number of cattle. And then suddenly, because of EU laws, because of all of these different things coming in, they simply can't anymore. And there's been nothing put in place because everyone's concerned with kind of short-termism in politics. Like, how, like the government were not willing to talk about the herd because they don't want to lose support. And I just think they underestimate people all the time. They think that... As an electorate, we just want to hear what needs to be said for a vote. Whereas actually people are realising that's not really doing us any favours and they'd like a more kind of honest style of politics. What's the solution? If these things have to be done, how do we do it? And then I think you'd be surprised at the response you'd get. Your introduction to active politics was through the two referenda on same-sex marriage and also on repealing the eighth. You also, I think, were active or at least involved in the campaign for David Norris in the presidential election of 2011. Um, I'm wondering... To what extent were you motivated by trying to roll back the influence of the Catholic Church uh, in Ireland in getting involved in those campaigns? Um, I think like being a young woman in Ireland pre-marriage equality and pre-repeal the eighth and seeing things like the Ryan report coming out and the Magdalene laundries and stuff, I did always feel really kind of confused and disillusioned about the stronghold that the religious orders have on government policy and on our education systems and all of those things. And I remember after um, the repeal referendum, uh, listening to a podcast with the, it was the Irish Times Women's Podcast. And it was actually Maeve O'Rourke and Conal O'Flaherty talking about the uh, Magdalene Redress Scheme. That'd be my daughter, Maeve O'Rourke, for clarification purposes. Um, And feeling like, utterly unrepresented that there wasn't politicians screaming from the rooftops about this and just seeing like we see the same story unfold every time where there's a massive injustice like really criminal and no action been taken 
and it just being this kind of accepted thing that like, oh, well, because it's the church, nothing's done about it. And like if any other organisation was involved in that kind of activity, there'd be massive repercussions. When you were elected to the Dáil just three years ago, I think some of your critics dug up some old tweets. Some of them were quite juicy. Uh, I mean, when Pope Francis was elected, you described him as the head of a paedophile ring. And then another one you said, Cardinal Brady and his Christmas message can just f*** off. Um, w- w- did that reflect a kind of a deep anger or what was it? I mean, you, you did say afterwards you were sorry they were immature. They were like the tone of them <coughs> is very immature. And very embarrassing. I think I was 21 years old and just, you know, wasn't even funny. (laughs) But um, I guess I don't claim to disown the sentiment of my tweets. And like that, the tone is utterly unacceptable and embarrassing. And, you know, I do regret the the nature of them in that sense. But, you know, for for example, that women had no access to abortion care, that, you know, people who are gay couldn't get married or, you know, loads of different things. And I think what we have is in Ireland is a reluctance to speak out against the religious orders for fear that will offend individual members of the church. And I can understand that. That's my family, my neighbours, my friends. Nobody wants to offend individual members of the church. But when we stay silent, we offend the many thousands of victims who have been abused at the hands of the religious orders. And for me, that's worse. But that that abuse would have been perpetrated by, I think it's true to say, a minority of people in religion. And but those... systematically. Th- you but know, there was systematic abuse within the church. And that's where the problem lies because it was facilitated, it was brushed under carpets, it was hidden. It there was, was certainly systematic cover-up, but it wasn't necessarily systematic at an institutional level in terms of the abuse itself. Well, in terms of incarcerating women, for example, into mother and baby homes was happening systematically. I know, but that was, you know, where, where they could argue for, I suppose, a, lot, a good while about where the responsibility for that lay. Was it with families? Was it with men? Uh, was it with uh, the courts? Every bit as much as it would have been with the religious who ran those institutions. I would argue that predominantly the responsibility lies with the church and the state for running the institutions, for funding them, yeah, I, I know you're not the biggest fan of the Labour Party and I want to come back to that. Um, but their education spokesman, Aon O'Reardon, talks in terms of religious involvement in education uh, with the phrase of let's get them out. Is that something you would agree with? I don't think let's get them out is the, the right tone. Like personally, I think secular education would be really beneficial in Ireland. And I, I think in, in so many ways, like this, the kind of segregated two religions and the, the school system there isn't helpful and Interestingly, the, the research around the the North and the potential in the future, secular education is something that is seen as maybe something that would really help. Um, so for loads of different reasons, I think it's really beneficial. I think we need to move towards that. But it has to be done really carefully because any changes to a school system have to be done in a way that's like workable for the department, for the teachers, for the students, for the parents. And it's quite a, a sensitive topic as well. But I don't think... Um, get them out is necessarily the right tone. On the day of your election, uh, Holly, uh, you said that um, you wouldn't consider any merger with Labour because they had broken trust with the people. You said, I'm only going to say this once. No is the answer. Um, and as I say, you, you suggested they had broken trust with the people. How did they do that in your view? Or how did that happen? Um, when they went into government, I mean, obviously lots of people say 
you know, those were the times and it was austerity and all of that stuff. But like that was a, a known reality and the known climate when they went in and there was lots of promises that were broken. But like, I think sometimes I've heard this kind of covered on different media and different podcasts, actually, where they're saying that like, um, you know, that I really anti-labour and really not at all. We're consistently asked, like, would we go into a merger with the Labour Party? The answer is no. And like you said, I said, I hope I only have to say this once. But of course, I've been asked about it many times. No, no, since. but the question is how and they how how they broke trust. I mean, they would say in their defence, they protected the most needy people. They protected social welfare. Uh, they restored and made sure that the minimum wage was restored. And beyond that, on social issues, you could say there would have never been any movement uh, on abortion, repeal the eighth or indeed on same-sex marriage without the Citizens' Assembly, which was a specific Labour project. It's things like introducing like the housing assistance payment, you know, the lowest number of houses ever built under uh, a Labour government. Like, look, I mean, everyone's entitled to their opinion and if the Labour Party don't feel like they've broken people's trust that is up to them. Do you but give the them any credit, is, though, for their role in that government? Bearing in mind, we had the Troika here at the time. I think credit could be given if they were honest about what was going to happen. And that's what I mean by the trust being broken. I'm not saying, oh, they could have done, given you know, the sun, moon and stars and that kind of a climate. But it's about honesty. And a lot of promises mm. that were made before they went in just weren't kept. And the, the reality is that, like, the kind of, like policies of social democracy that Labour kind of champion were they went against those policies like the sale of poor gosh you know kind of selling things to the private market for less than they're worth like we still had that now there's loads of different things that were that they went against what the people thought the fundamental principles of the party were but the Troika were running the country at the time effectively Yes, but they didn't say when we go in, we'll have to do this, this and this. They were promising things that they didn't keep their promise Frankfurt's on. way or Labour's way was a famous phrase used by Eamon Gilmore. But say, like, if, 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 is it the way that you think that all of the people that feel that their trust was broken by the Labour Party should not feel like that because the Troika were in? No, I'm just simply saying there's a context to all of these things. They took particularly difficult decisions. There is, and we are a different party to the Labour Party. So the thing about like having a new political party that isn't about like old policies, old politics, jobs of the boys. It's it's like you still, there's still like, there's small differences, but look, like there's, people don't ask Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael the whole time if they're going to merge like they ask us about the Labour well, Party. Well, actually they do quite a bit, funnily enough. Um, and not at every time they're out in a thing, like the amount that we get asked and the insinuation when we're asked is would we merge into the Labour Party? Which is basically saying to us, would we not exist what about anymore? A rever- what about a reverse and takeover? I mean, there's things that I noticed, like even see with the Labour Party, that like, I, I can't believe it that they're supposed to be, everyone says, oh, there's only a cigarette paper between the Social Democrats and the Labour Party. And then when it comes to things like um, funding of the greyhound racing industry, they vote to keep the funding and stuff. It's like, there is that kind of element of the old style of politics. Would you take all of that away relationships. on greyhound industry? I mean, I think they get something like 18 million um, and it went up by two million, was it, last year? You were quite incensed about that. And um, would you want to, as a, a part of a programme for government, to abolish funding of the greyhound industry? Yeah, in a phased out basis, because if you just uh, kind of struck it off of a year, there'd be a lot of kind of animal welfare concerns and issues about the dogs and stuff like that. But at present, about 6,000 dogs annually are, are uh, bred to be killed. Mm. It's a financial basket case, a loss-making industry. 
most of the general public don't want taxpayers' money going into it. Yeah. And yet every, somehow the majority of um, representatives in the Dáil do. So I would phase it out. And look, imagine if that money went to Irish guide dogs for the blind who have to actually fundraise for their money. You know, there's plenty of ways you could spend that money. Not another, to mention for other sports. Another memorable comment from your first day as leader was when you said in the Dáil, you are a member of the first generation who will be worse off than their parents, that that didn't happen by accident. And I think housing was the biggest policy issue that you cited uh, facing the government. Now, what would you differently, would you do differently from what the government is doing? On housing? Yes. I think for one, and I think this is actually probably the most important point, but in, t- in terms of detailed different policy things, I'm be delighted to go into that afterwards. But there's two different ways to approach a crisis and the key is the word crisis. So we saw how, for example, the COVID pandemic was handled. that It was treated like an emergency and there was an emergency response to that situation. And then we have the housing emergency and a completely different response. And the more time goes on, the more I kind of feel like I realise that the reason they're not declaring it as an emergency and responding like it is is because it's such an admittance of failure from you know, 12 years of Fianna Gael in power. And I think it's in many ways egos getting in the way of that response and it's desperately needed now. Um, so even, for example, this week we see the, the there's one billion unspent of the housing budget, which is very embarrassing for a government in a housing crisis. And now they're scrambling around to try and spend that quickly. And they somehow found a way to put some of that money straight into the pocket of developers. Well, is it that or is it just making it more feasible uh, for people to buy, For first of all, for, for builders or people in construction to build out apartment blocks and that there's a subsidy going in there to make those apartments uh, more accessible and more affordable, uh, relatively speaking, to people who would want to buy them? There's no, no, even uh, the Minister for Housing was asked about this, the Housing Committee by Keanu Callaghan, my colleague and housing spokesperson, the Social Democrats, and the minister himself admitted that there's no reason to believe that it will reduce the cost for the buyer at all. So they haven't put any kind of measures in to ensure that the cost then reduces for the buyer. And like we're in a housing crisis in terms of number of homes, but there's an affordability crisis here as well. You know, people can't afford to buy the houses. So the measures that the government are putting in, it's kind of remarkable that they found a way to put it into the pocket of developers rather than to reduce the cost for the buyer. And look, I recognise that it's a method of trying to get the, I think it's 80 plus planning applications rolling because they're saying you can only avail of this um, reduction in the, the yes, cost. Yes, because there are loads year. of projects for which there's planning, but, but the finances aren't right for the... what they should be doing is putting that money into social and affordable homes rather than into the pockets of developers. And what's happened is that in three years since they've taken office, they haven't once met their social and affordable homes target and now they're doing this it's like they're scrambling around they're out of ideas and they're trying to spend okay, well, a budget that they haven't do? managed to spend What would you do differently? I would treat it like an emergency response But I mean I think the doll has already passed with government uh, approval or at least uh, acquiescence motions describing I'll give a couple you know, the of situation examples. as, a, as yeah, an emergency absolutely. so there's no issue about that There is an issue about that so like if you treat this as an emergency and you consider that there's there's disputes about these figures from 40,000 to 100,000 vacant homes in the country. Normally the government go with the CSO figures, but they don't on this. But say even if it was the lower end, like the 50,000 homes, that's a lot of homes that could be bought immediately back into use. So that's something you would focus on immediately. The government finally recognised that there was a need for a vacant homes tax and they introduced that tax at a laughable 0. 
3% at a time when house price inflation was at 10%. And you want you want a 10% uh, tax on those We want a homes. tax with teeth, something that works because at the moment if your house was increasing if you, you know by thousands a year, 10% and you're getting a, a vacancy tax of 1,000, you're incentivising the person sitting on the property to sit on it. What do you say to the tweeter uh, who says that uh, what Holly Cairns wants to do is take my property off me over 10 years at 10% a year? I say we're in a housing crisis. Use it, rent it or sell it. Because sitting on properties that could be housing families who are on the streets, children growing up in hotel rooms, families in cars, we're in an emergency situation and the job of the government is like you can understand why somebody might feel, look, I want to keep my vacant property. I've worked hard to buy that. But it's about balancing the national well, interest, you... the, the, the greater good. So it's the job of the government to say, in this scenario, when there's so many thousands of homeless people, many of them children, we have to bring these homes back into use. So yes, we would bring in a high tax because that's the kind of emergency situation we're in. Taxes are supposed to incentivise behaviour. That is a pathetic excuse. The government coffers have been doing quite well uh, last year. This year, I think they're projected to be a surplus of something like 10 billion, 16 billion next year. So on the face of it, you know, to use a, a phrase that we've heard, the, the, the state is awash with money. But the state also happens to have uh, a, a debt of €225 billion Euro, uh, as of the end of last year. So what would you do about that? I mean, they're paying that off on a gradual basis and this surplus is seen as something that can be invested. But it has been pointed out that it's not something that you could say put into investment that is needed every year Mm -hmm. because it's a one-off kind of thing and I think one of the things that they're talking about doing and I would agree with is perhaps investing that in pensions because it's important that we make provision for that. Um, The other thing that obviously needs to be done is an investment in housing because they didn't get to finish off the other measures. So keep the national debt just ticking over. I mean, it's under control you would suggest but there's no need to be paying down big wadges of it even though it is £225 Yeah, look, I think like obviously maybe some of it should go into paying off the national debt. But in terms of doing that in an effective way that's annual, it's like that's like a payment we make all of the time. So using a one off surplus for it isn't necessarily going to make an impact. It's kind of a drop in the ocean of that debt. But investment in green energy is our best way to tackle that debt. Like if we had invested really kind of, I don't want to say extravagantly because it wouldn't be extravagant to do it. But if we'd really hyper-focused on, you know, the export of energy in terms of wind, Ireland's in a very unique position in that sense. I think that would have been a really good way to tackle our our debt. And like when borrowing was 0%, you remember after COVID, we had um, in our alternative budget proposals for massive investment in that because the return on it could be so big and protect us going into the future in terms of the country making more of an income to be able to fund different things. Um, Not to mention the amount of investment they could put in in terms of solar. We are, I think, roughly at best or at most, I should say, uh, two years away from a general election. Mm. Uh, You have made clear that you were 100% interested in going into government. That's why you're in politics. You want to achieve things. What's your ideal makeup of the next government? You'll be there yourselves. Who else? Yeah, I mean, ideal. If you're asking for ideally, it's a, you know, obviously you'd love a majority Feasibly ideal, if I can put it like that. Feasibly ideal. Basically... I don't want this to sound like just the answer that all of the politicians give, which it might, but I just give me a second because genuinely it's about can we implement the policies 
that really mean a lot to us that we think it would be worth going And to you government. said you would drive a very hard bargain. You said that on day one. Absolutely. And I like I'm not going like like you said, I want to go into government. We want to go into government. Didn't get to, into politics to be in opposition. But I would also be very conscious that I wouldn't go into government for the sake of it, for going into government, you know. Every every small party says that though, don't they? Well, maybe it's true then. <laughs> but like you wouldn't. I wouldn't just go in because, you know, we want to be in government. That's not how it works. It's like So what are your must haves? Launch care is massive and I don't think you could speak to anybody in Ireland who doesn't think that you should be entitled to the same health care, you know, that you shouldn't be more entitled to health care because of how deep your parents' pockets are. And, you know, it's one of these policies that like is just, I mean, it's almost embarrassing for the country. Like oh, every other country in Western Europe has a national health service except us. And we spend more per capita on health, a million people on waiting lists. We have a policy there, cross-party agreed waiting, like moving so slowly. And I know it takes time to introduce that by 10 years, but like it was five years ago or more that policy was agreed on. So we'd be halfway there if there was the political will to do it. That is an absolute red line for us and obviously a key principle of social democracy, equal access to healthcare. Um, Housing policy is a massive one and during the last talks programme for government, that's the main reason we didn't end up continuing talks with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael because of their approach to housing. there's quite a lot of... Where, where are the compatibilities between yourselves, say, and Sinn Féin? Because again, the polls, insofar as they are to be believed or taken at face value, would suggest they will be the, the, the biggest party after the next election. Would you be comfortable working in government with Sinn Féin? I think we'd have to go into those talks, programme for government talks, um, and see, you know, what the lay of the land is and also what other coalition partners there might be. There's there's so many moving parts that a lot of it's kind of um, very hypothetical and very difficult to... And the thing is, it seems like an avoidance of answers, but it's like if you say something and then, well, because of this, it's kind of different, then it seems like you're going back on your word and it's better to be honest and say it really depends on those discussions. Of course, yeah. and we have to look at the numbers. It's yeah. a matter of arithmetic as yeah. much, in fact, if not more than a matter of politics or policy. Um, but would your ideal coalition uh, be one that excluded Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil? I think uh, certainly from them having the majority and the, the kind of the overall kind of control of the government, um, because I think, you know, we've 100 years now of this civil war parties and that's understandable because of our kind of really unique history. But I think it's really held us back from having the kind of healthy debate between traditionally you'd have like in other countries a right and a left and instead we've had a Fianna Fáil and a Fianna Gael. So I think it'd be really useful to have kind of a new style in Irish politics where we can actually start voting for policies rather than... Civil War, politics for the future rather than for the past. Kind of. You've raised doubts uh, or questions about Sinn Féin's commitment to climate change. Yep. Why? Um, they're not clear on their commitments to climate change. So that's kind of one of those things that you wouldn't really know where they'd stand on particular issues until probably those kind of talks for programme for government because they just talk around them um, and we just don't have the information on that at the moment. That's the reality. And look, arguably even though it doesn't feel like it when, you know, obviously there's massive issues affecting people all the time, but arguably the biggest issue is climate change. And when it starts to have an impact, it will become the most important issue to everybody. So it can't be something that's like done half-heartedly by governments anymore. It's And we need to end the conversations of like, will we or won't we take action in terms of agriculture, 
energy. It has to be, how do we do this? And I can't believe we're still having those conversations in the Dáil. Will we or won't we? We absolutely have to. And it's seen as something that is kind of like a very, you know, it's unpopular and don't say that or you'll lose votes. But I think when you try and be everything to everybody in politics, you become nothing to anybody. So what about things like, just on that point, um, carbon taxes? I mean, as of now, for a bale of briquettes, you pay something like seven fifty, uh, you know, on the garage forecourt or in your, in your local hardware. Um, I mean, do, do you have any, and, and there's also obviously there in the, in the price of fuel for people's cars, be it diesel or petrol or whatever. Uh, do you have any reservations about continuing to, to push up those kind of prices? I think... Um you know, it's one of those things that people would say is unpopular that Social Democrats, we are in favour of a carbon tax and we're public about that in the Dáil and unlike Sinn Féin who are apparently against a carbon tax. But, you know, there's those things I think you need to be straight with people and I think that we need a carbon tax but I think that that money that's collected from the carbon tax should be ring-fenced for a fair transition. So if the government has encouraged you, Sean, to invest this much in transitioning your farm into dairy and then five years' time it's not viable that there's a transition fund for you. You know, they're the kind of things that a carbon tax should be used for. But I think it's really important that it's ring fenced in that way, that it's fair and that it makes sense. What ministry would you like to serve in as a part of a a coalition government after the next election? Junior or senior? I'm assuming you would be at the cabinet table. I've always wanted, yeah, I suppose, because the the Minister for Disability is junior. uh, It's something that has always stood out to me. I'd love... um, to really change our disability service in Ireland, I think. It and in the same way as that there's now a minister at the cabinet table for higher education, would you see something similar happening happening where disability is concerned? It's. I think it would be no harm. But look, I'm recognised that there's only a certain number of positions that you, there's a, you can only have the 12 departments. So there's only, like, you, you can't just pick as many as you want. But um, the other, like, I'd love also... Um, to work in the Department of Agriculture because I think there's so many changes and a different way of doing things that could really benefit rural communities and prevent this kind of decimation of the kind of populations in areas like where I grew up. But I can't help but because since I got elected, I've done so much work on the Children's Committee. Um, I didn't realise, like that's one of those departments you don't realise how much is in there. But they deal with, that department deals with so many really important issues, things like foster care. We dealt with all of that legislation around the mother and baby institutions. The list goes on. I would more and more, like I've, I find myself being more and more interested in the stuff that goes on in that department. But I wouldn't be, you know, like particularly attached to a particular thing. It depends on ultimately like what TDs we have after the next election. If somebody had really good skills in that particular department, you know, you'd have to kind of figure out who would be best where rather than what do I personally want what would be best for that department and for the outcomes of it but I think instead of you know the way sometimes you see this kind of like oh well so and so has been there for so long we better give them a thing and like then it's like random and I think it would be really helpful to be relevant to your expertise or interests in that way and then like agriculture and disability would be quite suited to, to that that I'm actually maybe bringing something that I've learned through education or experience or whatever into the into the role. There is always the possibility, though, that your party and its ambitions could get swept aside by a massive surge towards Sinn Féin. Has that thought crossed your mind? Yeah, but I think you'd see from the polls like we've increased in popularity since the election. So although Sinn Féin are really increasing in support and that's very clear, it doesn't seem to be doing what you're describing. Um, but of course, 
like you see these, you know, like one of the things I learned from the last election, and it was probably one of the first ones that I really tuned into, I'd just gotten onto the council. And Sinn Féin councillors in Cork went from 11 to 2 in that council election. And then like, was it seven months later? They nearly won the election. And it occurred to me like, well, people decide how they're voting when the election's called. And I think one of the reasons Sinn Féin have become so popular in recent times is because there has been a void created by successive Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael governments not representing people. And the only kind of party big enough and old enough there and relevant enough was Sinn Féin. And the amount of times when I'm talking to people on the doors anywhere and they're saying, look, actually, I am getting sick of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. I've always voted for them because that's my family. That's who I am. That's who I like. It's really deep. But I'm starting to change my mind now and I want another alternative. People go, but I don't want it to be Sinn Féin. So there's, there is a huge space, I think, for another option in Irish politics. And that's why we're here. I didn't do this for the crack. I'd rather be back in West Cork. But I think there's huge scope for a progressive alternative in Ireland. We live, as they say, in interesting times. Lots to unfold. Holly Cairns, thank you so much indeed for joining us. Leader of the Social Democrats, thank you for joining us on the Insights with Sean O'Rourke podcast. Thank you. To hear more in this series, go to rte.ie forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.